Hello, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Irfan Manji, and I'm joined by David Klein, co-founder and CEO of Common Bond. Welcome, David. Uh, hello. Well, thanks for having us. No problem. Um, so to start us off, David, why don't you um, tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got into FinTech, what Common Bond does, Sure. So keep me honest on uh, on whether I answer all of your your questions. My my background, uh, you know, I first entered the the corporate world at, at McKinsey, where I advised mostly financial services clients. I then spent time in consumer finance at American Express, and um, you know, close to a decade into that experience, uh, I realized it was time for me to go start a company. I, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and so it's. Uh, in my blood a little bit. It was also part of my professional vision as I entered the workforce about 10 years before to, to do that. So the time had come and uh, I had decided to go to business school and use that as an opportunity to you know, incubate and accelerate an idea and ideally run the company uh, before even graduating. Uh, and it was precisely because I went to business school that I had stumbled upon this personal pain of student loans. And the reason is because I had to pay my way 100% with student loans in order to get myself through, through business school. And when I did that, I discovered a few things. One, rates were unnecessarily high. Uh, two, the process was opaque and unnecessarily complex. And third, uh, the service was pretty poor. And so after having had this experience uh, and realizing there had to be a better way, um, decided to, to take my background in finance and my entrepreneurial ambitions and, and do something about it. Uh, a few months in, I met my co-founders, Mike and Jessup. Uh, all of us met while we were students at, at Wharton, and we decided really to, to double down and commit ourselves to, to building up uh, Common Bond from there. So what is Common Bond? Common Bond is a marketplace lending platform that to date has focused exclusively on student debt. Uh, more specifically, has focused on lowering the cost of student debt for students and graduates. Uh, we launched uh, our very first pilot program at Wharton at the end of 2012. Uh, we launched nationally uh, in September 2013 after bringing onto the platform about $100 million uh, to get us kickstarted at national scale. We focus, you know, our, our, our focus at first was quite limited to 20 MBA programs. And since then, we have grown to virtually every graduate and undergraduate uh, level program in school across the country. Uh, in our march to have you know, the greatest impact we possibly can on the broadest number of people we can uh, in saving them a lot of money. And so what Common Bond does and has done on average for our average borrower is save them about $15,000 over the life of their loan, so a pretty strong economic value proposition. Um, and, and we've also you know, created a tech-enabled process that highly values simplicity and speed uh, so that applicants who then turn into borrowers have a best-in-class experience, not just compared to other financial institutions and platforms, but one of the greatest consumer experiences that they can have. Um, and when you throw into that mix what we consider to be best-in-class service, something that we heavily invest in, um, in treating our applicants and our borrowers as friends and family more so than uh, a faceless number, you get an experience that for many of our applicants who turn into borrowers 
is, is one of the best they've, they've had online. And so that's what we're ultimately getting to. We're, you know, our aspiration, uh, holistically speaking, is to be the leading values-driven financial services company, full stop. Uh, we've gotten our start in student loans. Uh, we want to deliver on the values that we share with our applicants and borrowers, which is to save money, um, to simplify a process that doesn't have to be complex, to provide service that is among the best. And by the way, we wrap all of that in what we call our social promise, which is a one-for-one -one social mission that says for every degree fully funded on our platform, we fund the education of a student in need for a full year. And we've partnered up with Pencils of Promise, which is an education nonprofit based here in New York, with a chain of 300 schools globally to deliver on that promise. So I'll, I'll pause there with the hope that I've answered all, if not most, of your initial questions and, uh, and go from there. Yeah, no, you, you definitely touched on all of them. Um, one follow-up question. Um, you mentioned a best-in-class service as sort of a point of, a point of differentiation, which is something that I've definitely experienced in my common, common bond borrowing experience. Um, can you touch a little bit on, as you scale, how you scale uh, a person-intense service like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question and one that I think is uh, right to be asked and answered in a business school setting uh, because there's a practical component, to your point, but there's also an academic component, which is, is it possible? And I think conventional wisdom, the, the immediate reaction of conventional wisdom is to think that great service can't scale, but I think we have a few really telling examples that, that tells the opposite story. And, and companies that I would point to are companies like Zappos, uh, companies like Nordstrom, companies like Ritz-Carlton on one end of the spectrum and even Southwest on the other end of the spectrum. These are all companies in different industries serving different customers that have proven that service can in fact be a differentiator, whether you're in a space that has a product that is more commoditized or in a space that you have a product that in and of itself can be unique. Service is absolutely a differentiator and the reason why some of the great lasting brands are in fact great and lasting. And so when we think about aspirational brands, those are the ones that we think of. Now, if we break that down, we can break that down across two dimensions. The first is what I'll call the philosophical dimension, and the second is what I'll call the tactical dimension, right? From a philosophical point of view, um, if you look at what these companies have in common, it's generally a founding team or a group of founders who highly value service and the customer. And what you see is that that permeates every decision, large and small, from the very beginning of the evolution to the end of the evolution, right? And you basically get this service kind of customer-centric orientation that is locked into the DNA of the organization. And that spills over into who you hire and how you hire and your onboarding and your training and decisions that you make as leaders inside the organization that serve as models for the rest of the organizations to follow and the, the micro and macro decisions that they make inside the company that you no longer have you know, control over, you start to, to grow and scale. And I think that's what you've seen at places like Zappos, Southwest, Nordstrom. And that's what we're looking to build here at Common Bond. I think that's something that is, that is uniquely Common Bond in this space. And one of the reasons when we look back in five to 10 years, um, you know, why, why we're a winner in this space. That's the philosophical dimension. The tactical dimension is, okay, that's all fine and good. And that's wonderful. But frankly, Dave, it sounds a little pie in the sky to me. Um, and, you know, to which, to which I would point to a few tactical things. Um, one is who we hire. Two is how we train, right? So if you look at who we hire, this is something 
that we do pretty uniquely in the space, not just in the specific student loan space, but I'd say more broadly. Um, and that is we, we hire for three things, high intellectual horsepower, empathy, and extreme competence, right? We are hiring people uh, who we ultimately put on the phones and email and live chat with our applicants and borrowers from schools like Penn, Columbia, Duke, Cornell. And these, these are the schools that we're hiring from, right? It's, it's not your typical model or profile for who you put on the phone or who you have on live chat with your borrowers, but it's something that we believe is important because we are dealing with a product that has been made complex by the tra traditional players, and it doesn't have to be. Um, and so if you have that intellectual horsepower to simplify what otherwise would be complex, you make our applicants and our borrowers' lives easier. And that ease of use, um, the ease of interaction, that human interaction goes a long way uh, for our applicants and, and our borrowers. Um, the, 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 the final thing I'd say on that point, which is who we hire and what we look for, is, you know, here is because you could ask, well, is that sustainable, right? And that's a fair question. And for us, the way we think about it is we, we bring in folks who meet all these criteria that are head and shoulders above the rest of what you consider a typical profile of somebody who's dealing directly with your customers on the front line. And within six to 12 months, they understand the business very well. They understand it from the customer's point of view. And given their talent, we can plug them into different parts of the organization, right? And so that's how, that's how we scale long term. And by the way, just given the effectiveness and the, the efficiency of them on the team, we might pay them more than what others might, but we believe we get that back in spades relative to the efficiency and effectiveness we get for, for the team. So that's kind of big point number one on the tactile. It's who you hire, it's what you look for. Okay. The second is how you train them, right? And this is where the philosophy and the tactics really match because training is driven by the, the philosophy and the DNA of the organization. And so we do everything from you know, the onboarding to ongoing training that allows everybody on our service operations team to really get and understand the common bond DNA and to bring that to every interaction they have with, uh, with our applicants and borrowers. Great, great. Um, so we, we touched a little bit on your points of differentiation, including how you have built and will maintain a best in class service. Um, let's touch a little bit upon how you're going to take these services and kind of expand it into different spaces, into different lending spaces. Um, specifically, you mentioned wanting to be the leading value-driven financial company, period. Um, and, and there has been a lot of buzz around sort of your expansion into other spaces. So can you touch on maybe your 2016 plans and what product pilots we might expect to see from Common Bond outside of, outside of sort of the student loan market? Absolutely. Um, so this is something we're really excited about. Uh, one of the things that, that you know, we've been thinking about for a long time is, or I'll say it this way, for a long time we thought about um, this longer term strategy as a company that helps serve our borrower at various stages of their financial life. And the plan has always been, hey, let's, let's really focus on student loans and knock that out of the park for about two years or so. And if, and if we can do that, we believe that we've earned the right to expand from our borrowers, from our investors, from the team. And so we're, we're in this unique position where we've reached that point and are ready, willing, and able to start um, uh, releasing products other than student loans. So watch out for the first half of 2016 for another product 
that we'll have on our platform that many of our borrowers have frankly been clamoring for. Um, many of our borrowers have told us that they would in fact, they need and therefore would use. And many of our borrowers have, you know, asked for unprompted um, because after they go through the common bond experience, whether it's the lower rate or the, the more simplified and speedier process or the service that we provide, um, many people would rather deal with us than other financial organizations um, for other products and services over time as their financial needs evolve. Um, so, so certainly look out for that. That's something we're excited about. It's something we're building right now, and it's, it's a piece of, um, of the broader kind of long-term puzzle that, that we're putting together on behalf of, of our customer. Okay, great. Um, to ask more speculative question, um, what is your vision for the industry in general, particularly given sort of all the major milestones that have been hit in, 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 re in the past year? Um, Common Bond had its first securitization this year. SoFi experienced its largest at around the same time. Um, outside of that, you had a very you have a very interesting partnership forming between JP Morgan and Ondex. What sorts of things uh, do you see happening that sort of further legitimize marketplace lending in 2016 or, or a few years out? Absolutely, and you know this is something that we've kind of seen coming for a couple years now. In fact, the way I've been talking about it the last few months is the fact that in 2015, marketplace lending is moving from the margins to the mainstream. And almost every month since December 2014, when Lending Club and On Deck both went public, you've seen this, right? In January 2015, uh, we at Common Bond uh, entered into a strategic relationship with Nelnet uh, from wow. a capital sourcing perspective, um, as, as well as a kind of some back-end operations perspective. Um, in, in February... Um, you know, you've seen, you've seen raises uh, from across the, the industry. Um, in March, you saw Goldman Sachs put out the Future of Finance report, which is now kind of this landmark report that a lot of people referenced, talking about how marketplace lenders are um, basically coming for banks' lunch. Um, in, in April, you had, JP, you had Jamie Dimon, CEO of JPMorgan Chase, talk about how Silicon Valley was coming. In May, you had Morgan Stanley put out a report similar to, uh, to Goldman. In June, you saw us come to market with our first securitization and the first time that a big three established rating agency, in this case Moody's, actually provided an investment grade rating to a first time issuer in marketplace lending. Um, in July, I mean, I could go on and on. There's literally at least a data point every single month of, of this year, right? Um, and so there's this notion that marketplace lending really is moving from the margins to the mainstream. And as we come to the end of the year here and you see things like the JP Morgan partnership with On Deck, it's just par for the course as far as I'm concerned. Um, now, what's, what's really interesting is, okay, well, that's, that is interesting, but what happens in 2016 and beyond? And I think what you're going to start to see is two things. One, with JP Morgan coming in, it puts a, that much more pressure on other companies like JP Morgan to figure out what their strategy is um, to coexist with marketplace lenders. Do you build your own platform like a Goldman Sachs? Do you buy your own? Do you buy a platform which we haven't really seen yet, or do you partner with a platform which is what we've seen with with JP Morgan? And so, what I think the move of JP Morgan 
and on deck has done is accelerate the build buyer partner decisions um, by traditional finance. The second thing that I think um, we started to see and will continue to see is that marketplace lenders more broadly all got their start in single asset classes, right? So you had Lending Club and Prosper get started in credit card consolidation. You see, you saw Common Bond and SoFi get started in, in student loans. You've seen On Deck and Cabbage get started in small business, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think what we're starting to see is that well, there's been a quote-unquote unbundling of, uh, of bank products. That is to say, each of us new players are um, attached to one particular silo of a bank's financial marketplace. What you're gonna, what you've started to see, and what you're gonna continue to see is what I'll call a rebundling of those services. So while Lending Club Prosper, On Deck Cabbage, Common Bond SoFi got all of our starts in one asset class, you're going to see it start to expand into others. You've already started to see it with Lending Club getting into small business, SoFi getting into mortgages. You'll see Common Bond getting into a non-student loan product in the first half of 2016. And I think what you'll find is this notion of following your customer for the life of the customer um, is, is a strategy that, that makes a lot of sense and that ultimately serves the customer better than they otherwise would have been served. And the really interesting question um, if you want to get academic about it, is how do some of us new players, um, if we are rebundling, right, uh, avoid the pitfalls that many banks fall into once they get large, right? How do we ensure that our technology remains cutting edge as it is today and why we have an advantage over traditional lenders or banks who have to take three years if they want to do anything meaningful in changing their technology and that assumes they can get buy-in throughout the morass of their corporation, right? Or molasses is maybe a better word of, of their corporation. <laughs> um, and that, that's a really interesting question. Now, we think we have an answer to it. We think we're building technology, technology in a way um, that is modular, that is more agile, that allows us to move and keep current and on the cutting edge of technology in a way that traditional finance has not. Um, but it's still a question that should be asked. It's, it's, an answer, it's a question that should be answered. Um, and that's where I think the interesting activity starts to happen in 2016 and beyond. Great, great. Um, so you, you touched on sort of um, the, the benefits that come with the increased recognition, whether they be partnership opportunities, scale to enable diversification, kind of tapping that lifetime value, um, your, your, your ability to build tech in a way that's, that's, that's scalable and flexible. Um, I guess on the flip side of that, are there some unique challenges with getting to this level of legitimacy in, in the lending space? Sure, yeah. Um, I, that's a very good question and one that every, I think, CEO of any emerging company um, has an answer to or should have an answer to. Um, <laughs> right, because if you think about it, just structurally speaking, there is a benefit that, a tra that being a traditional finance company um, brings to the table, right? And a lot of that has to do with cost of capital. So banks has what many are calling privileged access to a lot of structural elements in finance that some of us, well, really all of us emerging players don't have access to, right? Um, they have access to really low cost of capital. And the reason they have access to really low cost of capital is because they have a government-sponsored uh, insurance system that federally insures deposits of retail uh, depositors, of people like you and me who want to put our money in a bank and keep our cash safe, right? The government gives banks uniquely 
um, a pseudo-monopoly um, on taking deposits uh, because they're FDIC insured, right? The federal government also gives banks privileged access to, you know, the Fed discount window in tapping into low cost of capital in the way they do not give it to anybody else. Um, the system allows for banks and banks uniquely to tap into a, a back-end payment system that some of us can't really tap into as easily as banks. And so what we're dealing with are structural elements that provide what I'll call pseudo-monopoly structures to banks that we don't get access to. Um, and so that's what I would consider to be a structural constraint or a structural element on the playing field that makes the playing field not level um, and does in fact tilt the balance of advantage to traditional incumbents. So what we have to do as a group of emerging growth players is just recognize that as a constraint and work around it and innovate our way past it. Um, and so that's where I think you get into some interesting things around how do we get to use technology in a way that the traditional banks don't? How do we or could we reduce our cost of capital uh, in a way that either uses uh, the structural elements of banking or doesn't in the event we don't get access to it. Those are the key questions for, for us, and I think you're starting to see some of them be answered. So as it relates to technology, we've talked about it. As it relates to lowering our cost of capital, if you take a look at our first securitization, what you'll see is you'll see a relatively you know, um, small and early company in Common Bond who had only been around for about two years um, at, at national scale, not even by the time we launched our first securitization and got an investment grade rating from Moody's. Um, the fact that we were able to tap into that financial infrastructure um, and get the validation from you know, institutional or established players like a Moody's and be able to price our bonds um, in a way that from a historic perspective would have been unheard of um, you know, just a few years prior, I think there's a real story to be told and point to be made that's quite valid that says we as emerging marketplace lenders you know, could and will likely close that cost of capital gap quicker than traditional lenders closing a customer engagement and tech gap, which currently exists and that we already have. And so, you know, those are the dynamics that I see working or at play in broader finance. Um, and, and those, I think, are the races that are being run right now along the dimensions of, you know, emerging growth companies and, and then, you know, versus more traditional financial institutions. Great, great. Um, so I want to shift gears to sort of our last topic, and, and that's MBAs. Um, so you spent uh, some time at Wharton. I know you sort of incubated the common bond idea in, in, a, in a class here. Um, what advice do you have to MBAs who are trying to break into marketplace lending or even fintech more broadly, whether it be a product role, a business operations role, or a sort of business development sales role? Sure. So I'm, I'm going to answer that question, but let me pull up for a second on that question and say, you know, if there's having been an MBA myself um, and, and at Wharton even specifically, um, what I would, the, if I had one piece of advice um, or perspective is the better way to put it to anybody who's getting their MBA, it's to really leverage the experience of MBA to understand who you are and what motivates you. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the most powerful opportunities 
I had and I saw my classmates have at Wharton, and probably one of the most undersold and underappreciated elements of what business school allows you to do. Now, why is that important? And here's where I connect to the specific question that you answer. It's important because when you come away from your MBA experience, you want to know whether starting a company or going to a startup or working for a traditional company is right for you. And if you can figure that out, you've just created um, or avoided a lot of headache in life and you've created an opportunity to gain a great amount of purpose and fulfillment in your work, which let's face it, takes up a lot of our time in addition to other things that we value and find important. And so if, if, if there's one piece of perspective I could provide to any MBA, it's uncover, use this opportunity and this experience to uncover more about who you are and what motivates you and what that is telling you to do from a career perspective. Now, if going through that process, um, going to work inside of a fintech company is what you want to do, um, I, would, I would think about, you know, where do you believe you can add the most value? I can tell you as a team of 60 plus right now that's on its way to 100 plus in a few months, we're looking for great people. What does that mean? Well, I can tell you the four things of what that means internally, and I'll get to that in a second. But what it really means is, can you, can you step up and take ownership inside the company to fill the gaps that will invariably exist in a company that is growing rapidly? Um, can you take ownership? Are you skilled enough that when you step up and into that gap, you can actually help us solve real problems? Um, whether you're doing it yourself directly or whether you're pulling in the right people? And are you able in this environment of extreme ownership and impact and responsibility, but also intensity and urgency, going to be able to keep a great attitude as the oil that keeps the machine humming? If that's who you are, we want you. And by the way, so do, so do everybody else, or so does everybody else. Um, so talk to us first. <laughs> um, we, we'd love, we, we'd love to, to have you. And, and, I, and I promised I would get to the four things we look for just more tactically in people coming in regardless of functional area. We look for one, strategic acumen. This is the notion that you can think independently, uh, that you have good business judgment. Two, executional quotient. That is to say you can get stuff done. Um, three is internal motivation. That is to say, you're not always looking for external validation or motivation. It comes from within, and that's the thing that drives you. And then the fourth is just being a good person. Um, we want to work with good people, kind people who are you know, hardworking, uh, are able to have fun, and at the end of the day can, can help us build a great and lasting company. So that's, that's what we look for at Common Bond specifically. I think it fits more broadly into you know, these elements of ownership and impact, meaningful results, and, and having a great attitude along the way. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful advice. Thank you. I think it's a, it's a good note as any to end on. Um, so thank you, David, for joining me on the show today. Um, and we look forward to having you again. Again, this is Rafan Manji. Um, and thank you guys for listening. Thank you.